Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford here with Mark Snell. Hi, Mark. Hey, Carolyn. So today we get to talk to Paul Shari about his latest book, Four Battlegrounds. In it, he argues a new industrial revolution has begun. And like the industrial revolution, artificial intelligence will touch every aspect of our lives and cause profound disruptions in the balance of global power, especially among the AI superpowers, China, the US, and Europe. Four Battlegrounds defines this struggle through four key elements data, computing power, talent, and institutions. The fourth battlefield is maybe the most critical. The ultimate global leader in AI will have institutions that effectively incorporate AI into their economy, society, and especially their military. I found four battlegrounds engaging and sometimes terrifying. Um, it is, it's truly a picture of how AI is transforming warfare global security, and the future of human freedom, and what it will take for democracies to remain at the forefront of the world order. Paul Shari, welcome to Tech Transforms. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Welcome, Paul. Yeah, so before we dive into the book, would you um, just give our listeners a little taste of your background? Sure. So I currently work at the Center for New American Security. We're a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that focuses on national security issues. We're a bipartisan organization, so we have Democrats and Republicans working together on staff, even, I know, in today's polarized times in Washington. Um, we think that's really essential for putting forward pragmatic and principled bipartisan national security solutions. Been here for about nine years. Prior to this, I worked at the Pentagon in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, in the Bush and Obama administrations, where I worked on emerging technology issues, connecting uh, strategy and planning to the budgetary, kind of the nuts and bolts of how the Pentagon actually gets things done. Prior to that, served in the US Army. I was an Army Ranger, did a number of tours overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan early in the wars. So thank you for your service. Well, thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> Start the book. Um with a story during one of your deployments of how you started to really think about AI. Will you talk about that instance? Yeah, I, I remember very clearly this moment when the light bulb went on in my head about the importance of, at least as I was thinking about it at the time of robotics. And I think one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, this issue is much bigger than just physical robots that we can see with innovations like ChatGPT, for example, that AI has a whole wide range of applications. But I remember this moment, it was in the summer of 2007. I was in Iraq during the surge at the time when the US surged all these forces to try to turn the war around. And I'd gotten there, it was pretty early in my tour that I was there for a year, um, just been there a few months. And we're driving down the road and we come across a roadside bomb an improvised explosive device, or IED, as the military likes to call them with the acronym. Now, we saw it first, which is the preferred way of finding them rather than just like running into it. 
And so we stop. Um, and they called up the bomb disposal team, the explosive ordnance disposal unit to come defuse the bomb, which I thought was great because I'd seen among the units that I was with a variety of tactics, uh, one of which was leaning outside of the vehicle and shooting at the bomb. So calling the professionals seemed like a better tactic from my standpoint. Um, they're just you know, hanging out the vehicle and, and, and popping off a couple rounds at it. So we had to wait a while because these bomb disposal teams were in really high demand at the time. And they show up in their big armored vehicle, the, the MRAPs, the, these big armored vehicles they drive around in. And so I'm waiting for this bomb tech to come out in the big suit that they wear. Like if folks had seen the Hurt Locker, uh, the bomb disposal kind of suit that they wear. And I'm like, well, this is kind of interesting. You know, see what this looks like in practice. And instead, out comes this little robot. And I was like, oh, that makes a ton of sense. Like have the robot defuse the bomb, right? Why do you want to be on top of this bomb with your face up in it, like snipping the wires? Like that's crazy, right? Have the robot go do that. And then the more I started thinking about it, I was like, like there's a lot of stuff in war that's really dangerous that you could have robots do. And so when I left the military and I went to work at the Pentagon, that was one of the first things that I went to work on was how can we use robotics to help create more distance between our service members and threats? And there's lots of different ways to do that on the ground, in the air, under sea. I worked on a lot of issues surrounding robotics and autonomous systems inside the military, worked at the Pentagon. Um, and I've continued to work on those issues since I left the government. That was the topic of my first book, Army of None, which was on autonomous weapons, weapons that are making their own decisions about whom to kill. And as I was wrapping up that book, one of the things that really blew me away was all of the progress that we've seen in artificial intelligence. And it was clear that sort of the, the ground was shifting beneath our feet, that while you know, we thought what I thought, what I think a lot of experts in the defense space thought the real um, you know, hot area was in robotics. In fact, we've been all this explosion in artificial intelligence, which is related, but there are all these other applications beyond robotics, like we're seeing with ChatGPT, that are really groundbreaking and I think are having tre tremendous impact on national power and global power. And so that's what this news book is about. Well, and so thank you for, for talking us through that story because the book, the way you um, present pretty much every chapter is through a story like that, which is, it helped me stay engaged and understand, like you, you did a really good job of disseminating a lot of really complicated information um, and you break it down in four battlegrounds to four key elements that define the struggle for AI, I guess, dominance um, to control AI among those superpowers. So the four key elements are data, computing power, talent, and institutions. How did you land on those four elements? Yeah, so the, the, one of the motivating questions behind this was, if artificial intelligence is like another industrial revolution, if because it's a general purpose technology, much like electricity or the internal combustion engine, then how might artificial intelligence change global power? And so we saw that the first and second industrial revolutions change global power in these really profound ways, where countries that industrialized faster, they raced ahead in terms of national economic power, 
And then by extension, military power, they were able to translate that economic power to say military advantage. And we saw that this shifted the global balance of power in Europe and globally. It led the United States, for example, in World War II to be able to be a military power globally by taking all of the US economic power and transforming that, you know, those factories and turning them to churn out tanks and airplanes in World War II. But one of the things that the Industrial Revolution did was change the key metrics of power. So coal and steel production became key inputs of national power. Oil became this geostrategic resource that countries were willing to fight wars over. And so the question in my mind was, well, what is that in an age of AI? How would you begin to measure national AI power? And what are going to be the key things that countries should be competing in in an age of artificial intelligence to stay ahead? And that's what led to these four battlegrounds. So if you look at artificial intelligence as a technology, it is three key technical inputs, data, computing hardware, and algorithms. And so innovations like ChatGPT are algorithms that are trained on data using computing hardware. You need all three of those things to make this work. Well, the algorithms are like the hardest part to control because it's just math. And so if a paper is published online, then others know what that new technique is. And so that's that's very hard to get a national advantage from the algorithms. But data and computing hardware are really important areas of competition. And whether you're a company looking to capitalize on AI technology or you're a country trying to stay in the forefront, thinking about you know, how do you get smart about using the data that you have, acquiring data, cleaning it, getting it ready to train machine learning systems. That's an important component of AI power, as is the computing hardware side, these, these very specialized chips, graphics processing units or GPUs that are used to train these AI models. Like and the most advanced computing? AI systems. What's that? Like quantum computing? Well, what's interesting is like quantum computing is very, very powerful, but at the moment, not directly connected to a lot of these cutting edge machine learning systems. Uh, so things yeah. like ChatGPT, right? They use massive amounts of computing power. They're using thousands of these specialized chips running for weeks or months at a time. Um, but not at the moment, quantum computing that's used for other things, but is more still in the research space um, in terms of trying to get to fundamental advances of quantum computing. But having data and computing hardware, having chips alone doesn't get you to some meaningful AI tool. You also need the human talent. And there's a really fierce competition for human talent globally. And you need the institutions, the organizations that can take these inputs of data, computing hardware and talent, and then turn them into useful applications. And when you look historically, the institutions have to be really critical for who stays ahead in these technological revolutions. Could you explain that piece of it a little bit more? Because that to me is fascinating. So, you know, are, are you talking like, uh, you know, governments uh, or as an institution, or are you talking more, are you breaking that down? Universities. All of the above. Yeah. Hmm. So um, governments, companies, um, universities, research labs, the networks between them. So to give an example. In by the time you got to so so airplanes were invented in the United States, but by the time you get to World War II, the U.S. has no meaningful advantage in aircraft technology because it's proliferated among all of the industrial powers at the time. 
So they all have access to aircraft. The question for militaries at the time is, what do you do with an airplane? And so the advantage in World War II of using air power doesn't actually come down to the technology. It comes down to the institutions that exist inside different countries to take this technology and transform it into some useful military input. Mm. So the British, for example, they built aircraft carriers first. They were the first to do that. But then they fell behind the United States and Japan in aircraft carriers, not because they didn't have access to aircraft technology. They did. It was because of internal bureaucratic squabbles within the British military about who was going to be responsible for air power. And that's what caused them to fall behind. And that's a lesson that comes up repeatedly throughout the history of technology and particularly military adoption is that bureaucracy and culture matter a tremendous amount in terms of taking these raw technologies and turning them into like actual meaningful advantage. I want to ask you a question about this because you talk about um, the, the, there being a divide, and maybe it's a cultural divide, of uh, high tech, and like Silicon Valley, and government. And and um, I mean, I guess they, they work together, but that, 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 that there's, it's not necessarily uh, that they work great together. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that, because it seems to be an advantage and a potential disadvantage for us. It is. It can be a struggle. The government used to play a much larger role in the science technology ecosystem in the United States. So in the 1960s, in the wake of the Soviets launch of Sputnik, the U.S. government made these massive investments in science and technology. And when you look at um, major technological innovations at the time, like the space race, was driven by the government. Well, since then, government spending on science technology has declined pretty steadily. And the private sector of the U.S. has stepped up to fill up the gap. So overall national spending on research and development is still pretty high in the United States, but the balance of kind of where it's coming from has really changed. And now the government plays a a secondary role. And so um, one of the challenges that the U.S. military has faced for this technology like AI that's coming out of the commercial sector It's in some ways, it's like the opposite of stealth technology that came out of secret defense. It's coming out of the commercial space. And so the military has to import this technology. And um, that's been a real challenge. And there have been some, you know, some media headlines about some tech employees saying they don't want to work with the U.S. military. There was a kind of a backlash a few years ago. And we saw employees at Google, Microsoft, Amazon, all right letters saying they didn't want to work with the military. The reality is all those companies are still working with the military. Even Google that discontinued their work on Project Maven, one of the DOD's AI projects a few years ago, they're going back to working with the Defense Department now. The bigger obstacle are internal issues to the defense acquisition system. All of the red tape that exists that makes it hard for companies to work with the Defense Department. And so when I talk to, particularly for startups, you know, the big tech companies, they can they can weather some of these concerns. Um, they can build out their compliance architectures to comply with all the red tape the government has. But for small startups, it can be lethal to their yeah. ability to innovate. And that's actually, I think, the biggest challenge the government has in trying to stay at the forefront of this technology. This came up a year ago at the at the, the Billington event, Carolyn, that, that the whole acquisition, how, you know, all these 
great technological startups. They just said, look, I can't, I can't even deal with the government. So it's just, yeah. you know, it's too hard to do business with them. Yeah. It does not work in, in AI, in this high tech environment. So, but I, I was thinking about um, what you said about the bureaucracy getting in the way, like Great Britain during World War II, they fell behind because of their own bureaucracy. And even with Project Maven, you know, I don't know if you would call it bureaucracy or arrogance, like the government wouldn't say what they were really doing with the technology mm -hmm. industry. Talk, talk more about that. Well, I think it was a big mistake at the time. I, I think that's a great point. So there was a big blow up when a few years ago, it came out that Google had been working on the Defense Department's Project Maven, which was the DOD's first project really capitalizing on AI coming out of the deep learning revolution and using this for image processing for drone video feeds. And um, it still is really kind of the DOD's biggest flagship AI project. We haven't seen a lot of other major AI successes since then. I think that's a problem for the department because that's, you know, we're five years old. But at the time when it came out, you know, I think it was a bit of a surprise. I was surprised that Google was involved in a project like this just because of their, their brand and how they position themselves as a company. But a number of Google employees were really upset about this. They wrote this open letter protesting. It became this big crisis for the company. And the DoD basically was like radio silent on the whole thing. So they, they weren't engaged on explaining what are they doing? What is Project Maven? What is it used for? And one of the challenges was it was being used to process video feeds coming off of drones. Well, when people hear drones, they think of drone strikes. Mm -hmm. And then they, you know, it, it sort of generated all this controversy of like, oh, you know, they're weaponizing AI and they're using AI to kill people. And like, none of that was true. So, you know, it, it was using AI to process this imagery to make better sense of it. It wasn't doing targeting. It was helping the humans, the Intel analysts, process this information better and faster and more accurately, get better situational awareness about what's going on. Um, whether you know you support U.S. counterterrorism policies or oppose them, presumably having the humans making decisions be better informed would be a better thing. So they're less likely to have accidents and, and make mistakes. But the DoD didn't engage on this. And then in sometimes the DoD actually would say things that I think were really not helpful. I felt like they doubled down on the autonomous weapon, yeah. which like you said, it wasn't true. Right, right. It was kind of, and part of the problem here is like, there is this big cultural divide. And so the way that the military talks about these issues you know, it works within a context of like war, but maybe doesn't land so much in the civilian sector very well. So at the time, the Secretary of Defense, um, Jim Mattis, was really focused on lethality. So like we've got to increase lethality. So this became like the buzzword across the Defense Department. Everyone's talking about, oh, my program is lethal. Look at how lethal we're being. So they can, you know, kind of, you know, appeal to the secretary and make sure their budget doesn't get cut or whatever. Um, they shouldn't say these so things what, in public. Well, it just doesn't, it doesn't like resonate. People are like, what? And so well, they would use it to apply to all these random things. Like one senior defense official referred to their cloud computing initiative as increasing lethality, which is like, what are you talking about? Like we're dropping servers on people? Like that doesn't make any sense. But 
you know, within the DOD context, <laughs> right? It's just, yeah, so not, that's not going to be effective tactics. But then, then you get people protesting it who were like, well, the DOD's war cloud. And it's like, well, the DOD kind of encouraged that, right? So I think that cultural divide could be a problem. Well, you know, uh, I think about, you know, as an American, you know, and I've been in this space for a long time, I think of how we compete against our our, our nation state adversaries who, you know, I, I really don't know how far they are down, you know, these paths and are they more competitive than us? You know, it puts us in danger. Um yeah, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on like how we compare against some of our adversaries in, in these areas. I know, who's winning? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, I think the U.S. has perhaps a narrow lead in artificial intelligence for now, but China is a major global powerhouse in artificial intelligence. They have leading AI companies. They slightly behind some of the U.S. labs in the frontier of AI development in terms of the most cutting edge systems like ChatGPT or its successor GPT-4, but they're behind in a matter of months. And the That's bigger challenge for militaries, what's that? It's not much. It's not much, right. It's not, <laughs> it's not like a decade, right? It's, yeah. you know, maybe like nine, 10, um, 12, 18 months, you know, it's not not five years behind for sure. And then the bigger challenge for militaries is to import this technology. And the Chinese military has the same opportunities and challenges that the U.S. military has. So they both have access to leading AI companies, Chinese companies like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, SenseTime, iFlyTech, our leading global AI firms. Um, and, you know... There are still institutional barriers inside China towards military modernization, just like there are here in the U.S. But on that front, it's a pretty level playing field, which I think is not certainly not what the U.S. is looking for. Mm -mm. You say that institutions are probably of, of your four categories. It's probably the most important Did I am I am I misquoting you? I think they're I don't know. I think they're all important. <laughs> It depends on which, I think it depends on what we're trying to talk about. If you have a military advantage, I'd say it's the most important. Yes. And, and how it's playing for China. Yes. So I think why is because fundamentally both the U.S. and China are going to have access to AI technology, to robust AI ecosystems, big tech companies, startups within each country. And the bigger challenge is going to be how does the military take this technology, work with its civilian AI scientists, and then translate this into useful military applications? There are some things that are different about the ecosystem inside China. The government overall plays a much, much larger role in the economy and in funding science technology inside China than it does in the United States. So when I visited the offices of iFlyTech, a Chinese voice AI company, I spoke with their executives. They said that about half of their revenue comes from the government. That's not true for mm. a major U.S. tech company. Um, the government is, frankly, a small, you know, um, you know, part of their business for a lot of a lot of U.S. tech companies. And so, that I think has a number of different effects in terms of both, you know, government spending boosting the AI ecosystem inside China, 
um, changing how companies are going to respond to government investment and government incentives. Certainly the kind of pushback you got from tech employees here in the US, you don't get that in China. Uh, if tech employees write a letter criticizing government, they're going to go to jail. So yeah. you don't you don't have that opportunity there. Now, at the end of the day, I'm not sure that that's the biggest barrier to adoption here in the US anyways. Now, I think the bigger barriers are things like the defense acquisition system, which is deeply flawed. We need to be able to move faster. I guess the good news here is the Chinese system is also sclerotic and broken and flawed. Um, but that's a place where it's, it's a pretty level playing field. And we've got to find ways to innovate faster on the institutions so that we can find ways to take this technology and turn it to useful military advantage. I wonder if like, uh, you know, the defense industrial base complex that we have here in the U.S., you know, they're 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 tapping that as well. So then it's not like directly related to the gut. Well, it's not like direct government to industry, but it's 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 technology to industry to government. So they're kind of doing it on the government's behalf. Yeah. And both China and the United States are, are looking to find ways to tap into the innovation happening in the commercial ecosystems better. And in some ways, China's like looking to the U.S. for ideas about how to do this. So a few years ago, the DOD created this defense innovation unit, the Defense Department's outpost in Silicon Valley, with the goal of tapping into innovation happening in tech firms in Silicon Valley. And it's successes. I think it's had trouble scaling across an $800 billion enterprise, but they've been able to bring in um, some new companies and bring them in for the DOD. Well, China's doing the same thing. They created, after the U.S. did this, they created a rapid response small group in Shenzhen, a major tech hub inside China. And the goal to tap into commercial innovation inside China. And in fact, this organization was called China's DIU by commentators inside China. So, you know, we see lots of instances of this kind of parallel innovation, um, whether it's in the specific technology or in organizational solutions. It feels like AI is the wild, wild west. And mm. so you talked about, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, DIU, DUI, not DUI. Yeah, DIU. <laughs> okay. And I, I recall there were some other things that you mentioned about putting some um, guardrails around AI and just like coming as a world, glo you know, globally agreeing on rules. Is that, I mean, is anybody really gonna agree on the rules? Like, or is AI like mutually assured destruction? I can't wait to hear this answer. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, maybe the dangerous is it's a little of both. I think it depends on what kinds of AI applications we're talking about, because AI has a whole wide range of applications. So um, on things like synthetic media, the use of AI to generate video, audio, images, you know, deep fakes, that's the place where it's very much the Wild West. We're seeing lots of innovation. Some of it's really cool, really creative, seeing some of these AI-generated images. Some of them are spooky and weird. Um, some of them are definitely problematic, whether it's things like people using AI to create revenge porn, you know, pasting people's images on, on the, the 
the heads yeah. of, of porn stars um, or people, you know, um, using them to potentially do political manipulation. And this, then all of these things are problematic. There was one case where actually an AI-generated voice was already used to commit fraud, where someone called a company and used an AI-generated voice to simulate the voice of the CEO and told them, hey, we need to make this urgent bank transfer. And the person in the line, they, they heard the sound of somebody they recognized, oh, it's, it's the boss, and they made the bank transfer. And, you know, that's a place where I don't know that we're ready as a society for all of the disruption that some of this AI-generated media is going to bring. You know, we see, for example, colleges freaking out about, you know, students using AI-generated essays. Um, it's just the tip of the iceberg about how do we live in a world where a lot of the things that we're used to seeing and hearing and believing could now be fake, could be fake in ways that are very convincing to people. And how do we think about provenance from media? Um, how do we think about, you know, sort of discerning what's real and what's not? Um, there are, I think, like important regulatory solutions, labeling synthetic media, requiring watermarking of synthetic media. So you can go back and you can actually detect whether it was AI generated or not. Um, things like a, a Blade Runner law. And this is one of my favorite titles of solutions. California passed a few years ago, a Blade Runner law named after the, the movie Blade Runner, um, where, you know, in the movie, they have these, these synthetic humans. And so the Diva Blade Runner law is basically that if you're talking to a bot, an AI system, it has to disclose that it's a bot. So that if a company calls you and it's an AI talking to you, they have to tell you that it's an AI. Um, that's like a, a bot disclosure requirement. And I think you know that's a sensible thing to live in a world where we have these kinds of technologies of like, yeah, um, you should know if you're talking to a human or to an AI. Like that's, well, criminals that's not science fiction anymore. Criminals aren't going to do that. Right. Criminals aren't going to do it. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, that gets into a, a difficult problem with a lot of these things is how do you manage this technology? So particularly given how widely available AI is. So last year, company Stable Diffusion took an image generating AI model called Stability. I'm uh, sorry, Stability AI is a company. They released this model called Stable Diffusion. And they um, the model that they trained had two key safety features. One it would not generate certain types of content. So if you wanted to generate an image of like, um, like child pornography, it would not generate that. It had a filter. And it had a watermark that was embedded. So any image that it generated would have this hidden digital watermark so you could tell it was generated by an AI. These are both really important features. Well, they released it open source, which meant the code's available for anybody. The first thing people did was strip off the filter and the watermarking, right? Yeah. And so that's like, you know, I think these are some genuine challenges we're going to face in society. Artificial intelligence is proving to be, as we've discussed, really hard to control, um, more so than previous technologies. Why do you think that is? And I mean, we've already touched on this, but are we going to get a handle on it? I mean, I don't know whether we're going to solve these problems. I'm optimistic. Um, but I think that the concerns are real. So you talked about 
the exponential growth that we're seeing in AI. And the term, you know, the term exponential gets thrown around loosely sometimes, but like in this case, it's real. So here's the hard facts. Since 2010, the amount of computing hardware that's being used in these cutting edge machine learning systems like ChatGPT has increased 10 billion fold. That's a huge- 10 billion fold in the number of dollars? times improvement. Yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. Since 2010, just 12 years um, or 13 years now to, to 2023. And so this amount of computing power in these new cutting edge models is doubling every six months. That's much faster than what we saw under Moore's law doubling of computing power every 24 months. And that's what's driving a lot of this really impressive growth. So when you look at something like GPT-4, that's the newest successor to ChatGPT, it achieves human level performance on the SAT, GRE, and the bar exam. That's pretty impressive. It's doing things that, you know, like if you had to ask me, I would have said a year ago would happen, but probably not for another 10, 15 years. And the pace of progress is really rapid. And that's what's causing so many AI scientists to raise an alarm saying, hey, you know, we don't actually know where this is going. We don't know what we're going to see 12 months from now, much less five years from now. And we continue to see, you know, an increasing number of AI scientists saying we need to slow down. We need to take a pause. We need to pay more attention to safety because right now no one knows how to make these systems safe. There are some techniques for trying to do that, but they're not reliable. So for example, for this latest model, GPT-4, you do a whole wide range of things. It can write computer code, it can write poetry, it can play chess, it can um, synthesize chemical compounds. Well, a lot of these things are great and fun and valuable. Some of them could be used to cause harm. It can be used for cyber attacks. And that's one big concern that this is going to accelerate the potential for cyber attacks. Some scientists from Carnegie Mellon also demonstrated that it could be used to synthesize chemical weapons. That's certain. Where, that's and in fact, they, right? Like that's not okay. And, and in fact, these tools can be used to generate novel toxins that no one has developed before. And AI scientists have done this in the past. So this is the kind of like, you know, no one knows how to reliably put in guardrails to make the systems not do these harmful things. And that's one of many risks. There are many. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's worth, we need to take these risks seriously. And it's worth kind of all taking a breather and saying, okay, let's, let's make sure these systems are safe before we just rush to deploy them and potentially cause harm. Boy, it sure feels like we're in for some scary times and things that are going to happen before things get good because it seems like individuals move a lot faster than society and governments and there's always going to be people pushing the envelope on this stuff at least it just feels like we're probably going to have some bumps well and mark when yeah AI experts you know they a lot of times i love to go down the sci-fi path paul um <laughs> And they always assure me, no, it's not Terminator. No, it's not Blade Runner. I'm sorry. It feels like that's, we're really close. Tell me I'm wrong, Paul. Uh, yeah, I don't know that I'm going to say we're wrong. I think that like, uh, um, I think that it's worth being concerned 
And I think there are some things that seem like science fiction 10 years ago that don't seem like science fiction now. So the movie, let's, I'm going to throw out some sci-fi references here, right? For for those who maybe uh, you know, follow these things. The movie Her, a few years ago, uh, where Joaquin Phoenix plays, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's got this AI girlfriend. That's like basically real now. Um, it, you know, and I remember when that came out thinking like, that's wild. Like maybe someday that'll happen, but this could be a long ways away. no. You can have chatbots and AI voice assistants and people. There's a company replica that has these things that people use as girlfriends. And it's kind of weird, but like, that's not science fiction anymore. That's real. Um, One of the, a lot of the stuff, I mean, the plot of Blade Runner, no, but the idea that you can have like synthetic AI kind of entities that are interacting with people. Yeah. Synthetic media is pretty compelling and it's pretty powerful. They don't, People aren't building like physical androids that are convincing, but digital avatars that are, yes. Um, what about like a the... Cyberdyne systems or something like that where they are controlling military capabilities? Well, the military, you know, for, depending on where you fall in the issue, the military is probably pretty behind the private sector. So maybe that's good or bad, depending on your perspective. Yeah. Um, but the military is certainly working on artificial intelligence. You know, one of the movies that I think about a lot is Ex Machina, where they have this female kind of android. And at the end, you know, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, does it go good for the humans at the end? <laughs> you probably know if you're going to watch an AI film. And it, you know, it, just, it turns on them. And one of the things that I think is compelling about that particular film is it shows the dangers of anthropomorphizing these systems. And I think that's actually, that's like a valuable thing to hold on to, which is that, you know, we're, we're primed to have this mental model of personhood in our head that we use to interact with other people. That's how we can have a conversation. That's how we talk to strangers. You know, we have this kind of model in our minds of like what another person is like and we can interact with them. And we often project that model onto other non-human entities, to our pets, right? People name them Roombas. And that's fine when it's your it's your dog or your cat. But on these AI systems, I do think that can be harmful. And we can see this with things like ChatGPT, where it's specifically designed to tap into this tendency to anthropomorphize systems that they've trained the system to act as this chatbot. And you can interact with it and it kind of adopts this persona and it's like chatting with you. It's not a chatbot. It's actually what's crazy. It's not even it's not a human. It's actually not a, it's a language model that's generating text that's simulating being a chatbot. And so that leads to some weird behaviors. And we've seen it go off the rails. There was a, an article in the New York Times a couple of months ago where this New York Times reporter is talking to this bot. And it says that it's like in love with him and he should leave his wife and like come be with the chatbot. It's really strange stuff. And it has to do with some of the underlying architectures of what's going on, which is like under the surface this weird alien form of intelligence, kind of huge inscrutable black box, but it doesn't think like humans at all. And that's something I think that we need to keep in mind when we're talking about how we're going to use these systems to interact with them. You address that pretty in depth, don't you? In, in, in your book where you talk about what happens when they don't start acting like we think they should act like, like alien, you caught you said alien, you know, yeah. form, but when, when they, Oh, well, we thought it was going to act like this, but it doesn't act like that at all. Yeah. Right. 
and you know, these, these AI systems can be very brittle. They can do strange and surprising things. And some of it's just that it doesn't work. It just fails because maybe the situation in which you're using it is kind of novel. It's not in the training data. But sometimes the AI systems do things that are quite clever, but maybe not what you intended. One of my favorite examples of this is there was an AI that was used to play Tetris. It was trained to play Tetris, Nintendo game. It wasn't very good at Tetris. Um, one of the reasons why, as it turns out, is you only get feedback in Tetris on your score when you clear a line. So you have to have some like understanding of how you place the bricks to clear a line. So it doesn't get like good, very good immediate feedback. So this AI model was not particularly good. I'm not saying Tetris is like that hard. Um, people can train AI systems to train play Tetris, but this particular one, no good at Tetris. It was just stacking the blocks directly on top of one another. It's terrible. But one of the things it learned to do is really quite clever is it learned to pause the game before the last brick fell so that it would never lose. Oh, and that blows me away, right? Like, Yeah, but this is the way we're training these models. We're training them to win the game. I mean, right. so when it figures out how to win, we shouldn't be surprised. It's war games. It is war games. That's right? the thing. The only way to win is not to play. Uh, another good reference. <laughs> another good one. Another good one. And that's the, and so this comes up again and again that these systems find these sort of like surprising and creative ways to like hack things. Some of which is good, some of which is not good. Um, and I think one of the lessons here is that intelligence is powerful. Mm -hmm. Humans have conquered the globe because of our intelligence. We don't have claws. We don't have sharp teeth. We don't have armor. We're not big and strong compared to other animals, but we're smarter. And now we're able to create these machines that have some aspect of intelligence. They don't have the ability to do all of the things that humans can do yet. Although we are starting to see systems like GPT-4 that can do a number of different things that humans can do. And um, controlling this, this type of technology turns out to be really hard. Yeah, so I told you this book terrified me a little bit and I loved it. Um, I don't want to end on all doom and gloom. So I want to end with the last sentence of your book. So the last sentence in the book, you say, it is vital that the future of AI is one that advances freedom and global peace. Will you talk about the top things that need to happen for us to achieve this? Absolutely. There is a global contest underway for how we use artificial intelligence. China is pioneering a very dystopian vision of using AI for internal surveillance and repression and human rights abuses. Half of the world's 1 billion surveillance cameras are in China. They're using AI tools like facial recognition, gait recognition, voice recognition to monitor and surveil their citizens. And China's actively exporting this model around the world. There are at least 80 countries that have Chinese police and surveillance technology. China is working with other countries on exporting its laws and norms behind how to use this technology, the, the social software that underpins how AI is used. And this is all very troubling because of, it has profound implications on individual liberty and human freedom. And I think it's really important that democratic countries get together to push back on this creeping tide of techno-authoritarianism to present an alternative model for how to use AI. 
to have a framework for using AI and other digital technologies in a way that protects individual privacy, protects freedom, and you know that we can present to the world and say, here's another way to use this technology that doesn't threaten human freedoms, and then engage with other countries to shape how they're adopting it. And I think the stakes are very high to make sure that we're using this technology in a way that's consistent with democratic values and protects privacy and freedom. Democratic countries come together, work together. I'm just gonna totally paraphrase you here to push against evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's right. And I wanna see more democratic countries together come together to say like, these are on a whole variety of things, on laws, on technical standards for how AI is used to make sure that it's being used in a way that don't threaten individual freedom and privacy. So Mark, do you have any last questions for Paul? No, that's a perfect, that's a perfect way to end it because it's it's pretty profound and it's and it's positive. Um uh so I think that's a great way to end it. No. I agree. And for our listeners, read the book because Paul actually goes into detail of how to achieve this, of how democratic countries need to come together and how we can push against the evil. So Paul, I wanna give you the last word here. Do you have um, anything anything else you would like to say before we end? Well, you know, I guess what I'd say is um, I'm excited by the fact that there's been so much attention on AI in the news and so many more people engaging on this topic. I'll talk to people and people will say, you know, I, Heard a bunch of AI scientists are worried about AI. Like, should we be worried? And it's like, well, maybe, yeah, a little bit. Um, or people are, you know, interested or concerned about tools like ChatGPT. And I just would say, I think that's really critically important because we all have a stake in this world that we're building. And so we shouldn't be leaving it up to just, you know, tech companies or governments or experts that, that we all need to have a voice in this and be engaged. And I do think that we're going to have much better outcomes as a society if we're able to bring together a whole diverse set of voices for how we use this technology. Yeah, I love yeah. that. We cannot just let ourselves be assimilated like the Borg. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is this has been wonderful, Paul. I really appreciate your insight uh, today on a lot of uh, really thought-provoking topics. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mark, Caroline, for having me on and for this discussion. I really appreciate it. I mean, I, I don't even know if we have time for the 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 fun the fun question. This has been so interesting to talk about. Right. The whole thing has been fun. So yeah, we're gonna let you go, Paul. Thank you so much again for taking the time. Thank you, listeners. Share this episode, smash that like button, and we will talk to you next time on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram.